Welcome to the Dylan Taunts Podcast. It's that million dollar bash. Just a few months ago, Bob Dylan released his second book of prose, third book ever, and lawfully entitled it The Philosophy of Modern Song. The reviews have been mixed, but the book has already become the latest fodder for the academic industrial complex. Here at the Dylan Taunts, we have decided that enough is enough, and it is time to put an end to all the speculation and debate. We present to you the Dillentants, one and only definitive and final roundtable on the philosophy of modern song. Let me introduce our guest. Rob Virginio teaches modern literature at Alfred University. He is currently at work on a book about Dylan's album, John Wesley Harding. Nina Goss is editor of or contributor to the volumes Tearing the World Apart, Bob Dylan in the 21st Century, and Dylan at Play. She is a contributor to various anthologies and presented at the First World of Bob Dylan Conference in 2019, and the Dylan and the Beats Conference in Tulsa 2022. She teaches at Fordham University. Kurt Carney is a professor of history at Stephen F. Austin State University, where he teaches courses on black history and cultural history. He is finishing a book manuscript on the public memory of Nathan Bedford Forrest. Erin Callahan lives in the Houston, Texas area, where she teaches English at San Jacinto College. Grayley Hearn is an English professor at Xavier University in Cincinnati, where he regularly teaches a first-year seminar on Bob Dylan. He is author of the book Dreams and Dialogues and Dylan's Time Out of Mind, and he has a Substack newsletter devoted to Dylan called Shadow Chasing. And I am Jim Salvucci, founder and keeper of the Dylan Tots. What chapter, section, song selection, or observation stood out to you and why? I guess I'll, uh, I'll chime in. This is Grayley Heron. Um, there were a few, but I don't want to take up all the good ones. I think the first one that really landed hard for me was El Paso, because Dylan hears things in that song that no one else on planet Earth would hear. (laughs) And I don't know if he's right or he's wrong. I don't think it's even about right and wrong. I just love how audacious, outrageous, over-the-top, and utterly captivating. What he hears in that song is to me as a reader of his prose. It adds so much to my appreciation of the song. It adds even more to my appreciation of Dylan as a critic and as a person who spends a whole lot of time interpreting Dylan's work. I found it really um, reaffirming you know, that, that this, this practice of, uh, interpretation can be wild and speculative and, uh, go to places that no one else would go to. And if you tap into that frequency, go for it. Uh, you know, uh, Dylan goes for it. it. It really, it really, uh, uh, gives me a lot of enthusiasm as a critic of Dylan's work to see what a bold critic he is of other people's works, other songs that inspire him the way Dylan's music inspires me. Hey, this is Court Carney. There's a couple of things I go back to. I think, I think the first thing that really made me uh, stop and go back, and there's lots of things that did this, but the one thing that I, I keep remembering was the uh, connection to the Grateful Dead to Artie Shaw. I love I love that part in Truckin' when he's like, they, they're, like an Art, they're like Artie Shaw's band. And I, I just think that there's something really kind of warming about that. I go back, uh, the chapters I go back to in my mind a lot, uh, My Generation, I think is really fascinating. 
I think the what he kind of plays there is sort of um, uh, there's a lot of ideas that reverberate throughout the rest of the book. Um, same with Money, Honey. I mean, that's another one that kind of caught me off guard. That was that was another one, Money, Honey, and my my generation. But the final chapter, I think that's one we can play with a lot. That that final chapter on Where or When by Dion. I just think there's something I've the last few weeks I've been thinking about sort of the, the non song parts of this book. And I think that one really kind of taps into it. I think there's something really kind of um, beautiful about what he's kind of doing there. And we can talk about that later on, but I think, I think that's one that I, I think about a lot. This is Robert Virginia court. When you said the non song, you meant the non lyrics or like the musical aspect kind of meant the uh the sort of i think he's playing with history a lot in this yeah. in this book and i think he's talking a lot about these different vectors that are not just about the music is kind of what i'm saying sure, so like money okay. honey talking about capitalism or my generation talking about well generational shifts that's kind of what i was thinking yeah okay then i am kind of following that thread in my pick which is ball of confusion um, which I love the temptations and I love that song and I love what he does in that song. Um, and one of the themes of the book that struck me the most was this tension between how music, music, right? Song can fix or establish a kind of affinity, right? Um, across ages, across time. Um, but how it does, how does it do that in a culture? America, 1920s to 19 to 2020s, that is in the midst of a kind of terminal decline. And so when he writes, you search for a safe place on Ball of Confusion, uh, borrowing from the lines in the song, a sanctuary, and you think you'll go live with the Indians, right? And that's from the song Ball of Confusion. You look for a secret passage to take you there. And that, that for him is a, I, I think for Dylan is, is, is a song. Dylan writes, quote, you wanted to be in on everything, and now you are. You're, you're right there in the thick of it, And end quote. And I think being in on everything is listening to all the hit songs. And he's kind of commenting in that moment on the post-Dylan protest song, sort of uh, the floodgates are open, that the songs that you used to be sanctuaries are now, pla- are now, are now, are now places where confusion is heard. And there seems to be no place of sanctuary. So I, because I love the song, I keep going back to it, but I find, you know, in my marginalia, there's a lot in that particular chapter on Ball of Confusion, which threads with what Court was saying about how Dylan's thinking about history and, and, and other, uh, 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 not specifically about song craft, so to speak. This is Aaron Callahan. And to kind of build on what Court and Rob have said, um, and doesn't hurt anymore. I keep going back to this concept of universal suffering, and it says that pain is a thing. Um, you know, we all know loss, whether you're rich or poor, and that shot me to, you know, sort of this thread of literature. And Sonny's Blues is what I wrote in the margin, but it seems that he's dealing with through, you know, where he he says it most overtly in that chapter, but he's dealing with that of loss of culture of people who profit off of people's suffering, and you see that throughout the entire book. And so, to me, that was a some a thread that ran through, but also, you know, through a lot of his works as well. And so I keep going back to that chapter quite often, kind of, you know, make heads or tails and find the links that I can with the other songs. I'm Nina Goss. For me, it was the themes rather than the, it was the forest and not the trees that 
attracts me to this entire project. And I like reading it as a underhanded, or, you know, self-narration, that it's a, really an autobiography. And so the, I found the first chapter so clever that he start the Detroit City chapter begins with this figure incognito, desperate to get home. And that is the Bob Dylan story, right, launched right there. And so, and then the very next chapter, the, uh, the, um, pump it up. And he says, this song speaks new speak, which of course is what every, that is chapter 1A of the Bob Dylan story. So that that appealed to me. And the waist deep in the big muddy is just nuts. And I love that. And the lemmings and the he I just found that so engaging and freewheeling that that one always stays with me. And the photo of the Rolling Stones, which I'd never seen, which was beautifully reproduced. What Nina was saying if you if you took that Detroit City chapter and then mashed it with his interviews with Scorsese and No Direction Home, there's a lot of evocative sort of connectors there of how he's talking about himself and how yeah, it's the whole yeah himself. that we've heard yeah the want yeah desperate to get home homeless the exile the the sense of being free and all and unfree at the same time I found that very moving in the Detroit City section. This next question I want to ask is uh, one that Rob suggested. This tells you the collaborative nature of the dilettantes. It was based on a comment that Nina made on Grayley's contribution to the dilettantes on the Whiffenpooch chapter. As Dylan's second book of prose after Chronicles, how consequential is the philosophy of modern song in Dylan's oeuvre or even beyond that? And I mean consequential. And Rob means consequent. Do you, Rob? I, I mean... I mean, consequential. Yes. Yeah. I'm borrowing your term because I think it's a great question. Is it as consequential as a work like Rough and Rowdy Ways, which deals, uh, or Modern Times, or Love and Theft, which deals with um, some of these same th- themes that we've been talking about, about the um, ability of uh, song to account for the sufferings in history, personal suffering, um, the way that song can magically kind of transform that. And then as Aaron suggested, the way in which that's taken advantage of sometimes and the, the, the Dylan, the archivist, Dylan, the curator, Dylan, the iconoclast kind of shining his light into these different darknesses. As he says, that's a quote from, um, the ball of confusion chapter again. So, um, yeah, um, my sense is that I find the albums more consequential than the, than, than, than the book. And I can answer, uh, uh, Grayley, uh, about that perhaps because he's got his hand up. Well, I mean, I first would reject the very notion of making Dylan's music compete with Dylan's prose. I mean, it's a different thing. And even though this is a book about songs, it's a book. It's a written work. So for me, the comparison points are, the most obvious comparison point is with Chronicles. And I think it's a wonderful 
uh, sequel to Chronicles. It took him long enough, damn it. <laughs> but uh, like like Nina, I I think that this is a very personal book. But if Chronicles is his I book, Philosophy of Modern Song is his U book, right? And even though that U, that very important middle figure that he prefers to speak in, somewhere between I and other, or between I and stranger, the way I put it somewhere else, is fascinating to me because it is a place where, where the self and the other merges together in some really interesting ways. And uh, I love reading Dylan's thoughts about songs, but I also love how he makes this a multimedia venture, uh, a thing, again, that you can do in a book that you can't do with music, well, unless you count videos, but that's not really very important in Dylan's world. Um, and so the interaction between what he says and what he leaves unsaid and what he shows through a visual images rather than rights, I mean, all of that's just fascinating to me. And, and, and a point I'll, I'll throw in here and then I don't want to hog the discussion, but, um, Aaron mentioned, um, that great moving chapter on uh, doesn't hurt anymore uh, and that one's really important to me and I've written about that in a kind of political context but another way that I think it's really important and indicative of what makes this a cons consequential book is the closing of that chapter uh, on page 196 where do you go how do you identify with a world that has set you aside a world that took everything from you without asking a world that's asleep, bedded down, and deep into slumberland, taking one long, endless siesta. You'll go into the mythic land of rebirth, stare up into the mirror of the night sky, and talk to your ancestors. They're wide awake. And that's what I hear in this book, Dylan talking to his ancestors, and seeing his reflection in the mirror of those great ancestral spirits that are communicated through him and that are immortalized through song. So the title is The Philosophy of Modern Song. How philosophical is this book? Tying back into something uh, Grayley said earlier, this popped into my head, and I don't think you were gesturing in this direction, but I'm going to take it. How sincere is this book? I mean, we, you know, Dylan's introduced us to the unreliable memoirist, right, in Chronicles, is this an unreliable commentator? The word philosophy is mentioned twice in the book, besides the title. It's in Gypsies, Tramps, and Thieves, Your Philosophy of Life is Wait and See, and in um, Willie, uh, The Wandering Gypsy and Me, interestingly, two songs with that word, that contentious term uh, gypsy in the title um this song has a philosophical point of view uh keep moving it's better let the train keep on rolling let's go forever let's go till the glacial age returns for me there is a there there is very much so a a, a kind of philosophy of um embedding uh, to, to keep going for me is to keep listening to keep digging to keep up a kind of exegesis that returns us to these sort to uh, 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 beginnings, even though we're in a, a kind of haunted present moment. That's my take on that particular question. 
In terms of sincerity, I would take Nina's kind of structure and say, I think the forest is sincere if the trees aren't. I think there's, I think there's something there. Uh, I do not want to derail the philosophy argument, but I'll just say that I think that the, the, the word that's important in the title is modern. And if you look at mod, moderns throughout the book, I think the philosophy is almost like a, a, a red herring in some ways. I mean, what's he say? I mean, there's, there's that beautiful Jeff Slate interview that we haven't touched on yet, but when he says it's like a, it's a vibe or it's, the, the book is like a, what's, what, he says something like the book is a, a state of mind and more of a state of mind. Um, but I think modern, and I don't want to derail the philosophy part, but I think there's a, there's a real key element to all of that. I think, I think some of the reviews took, took him too literally, maybe, right? Maybe the, the reviews took him a bit too, well, this is a, a history book of music. And I don't think that's at all what the, the intention was. Let's talk maybe about the structure of the book. This book has no introduction. It has no conclusion. It has no overarching statement of purpose or process. It starts with chapter one and it ends with the last chapter. There's no other intervening apparatus aside from a list of, a partial list of photographic credits with a surprising number of absences in that list. And, and in that sense, it's, it's not unlike a Dylan song. Dylan songs don't get an introduction. Um, we don't get Dylan's notes in the, in the liner, um, about each song. We don't often hear him weigh in about the meaning or significance or even the process of writing individual songs. So what is the effect of this rather unconventional structure? First, can I, I know that somewhere Eddie Gorodetsky has said that this project began as a collection of the intros, the theme time radio intros. And they, and he and, and Dylan had a plan to to gather together these intros, which charmed everyone on the planet Earth, and put it together in a gifty package, somewhat similar to the philosophy of modern song. And that's one of the, and that's an origin of this project. I'm just really, I'm really eager myself because I think I'm the devil's advocate here, and I was not as. Um, I would give five years of my life to get another eight original songs instead of this thing in my lap. And so I, I want to be really careful myself to distinguish between whatever is, is intrinsically valuable and rich about this thing and what its role, its agency as an, a Bob Dylan, project that leads to these kinds of discussions and all are the hermeneutics of Dylan fandom, which is what we are skilled at. Some of us like Rayleigh more skilled than others. And um, I just want to be very careful to distinguish between what's here and what we conjure with our abilities to decode and recode and weave meanings and 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 whatnot and to to offer that the origin of this project was maybe not as uh metaphysical as we may want it to be that it was a Garadetsky has said let's put together the 
you know, the theme time stuff and, and box it up for people that, you know, would love to have it. Ern, any thoughts? Yeah, to Nina's point, I just listened or listened to theme time. And as I was reading some of the chapters, I recognized distinctly a lot of the passages from those intros and from those shows. So yes, to that point. And you said in one of our email exchanges, do you think that he's taking a shot at academics who will glean and, you know, glean meaning out of, out of what he's written? And I, at some points, you know, as I reread it, I did interpret that and I saw I saw your point, but I also thought I went back to um, T.S. Eliot, where there is a life of this piece of art outside of what Dylan maybe have in, had intended or what he, even if he is making fun of us, you know, for what we do, there is something there. And so, or we're going to find something there as we read through it. And maybe um, it's because we want to, but I, what, what Grayley has written has been brilliant. And um, what others have interpreted have have um, caused me to see the book in a different way as well. I disagree um, wholeheartedly that with a lot of the the, criti- the criticisms of him being a misogynist, but I do think that he places women in a binary here, so there there's something there too. But I think that it's a piece of art that's out there for us to interpret as we see as we see fit. I think that another point here that is interesting is uh, Murder Most Foul. And I think, I've said this before, but Murder Most Foul, when he, when he hits that turn and he goes into those riffs, it astounds me every time. I know it's coming. I know he's going to do it. And then it's lovely every time. And I think there's a piece there to this, too, where he's sort of playing with, what if we just throw all these songs up and there's something that comes out of it? And then it's kind of, you know, maybe it's real, maybe it's not. I think the theme, I haven't gone back to the theme time stuff as, as a piece, but it's interesting to go back and see kind of how much is really lifted, like what Aaron and, and Nina were saying. And it's all part of this cobbling together method, which has become Dylan's signature move in the last uh, few decades, right? Certainly since time out of mind. I mean, maybe as, in some ways, maybe this book is less comparable to Dylan's albums than it is, say, to his metalwork, to those wild uh, uh, gates that he creates, right? Where you take pieces of other things and you put them together in interesting ways. And for me, I, I mean, I guess I almost don't care whether uh, I am tapping into some frequency that Bob Dylan intended and he kept hidden in some kind of cagey, uh, cryptic way, or whether I'm totally making it up on my own. Because to me, this is the kind of book where I see Dylan cobbling things together, but in ways that are unexpected, but that he finds interesting. And he probably doesn't care whether Marty Robbins had any of this in mind in El Paso, right? Dylan doesn't care about that. He's doing his Dylan thing with it. And the thing I love about it, uh, you mean, call it hermeneutics or call it, uh, I don't know, uh, tapestry or whatever it is we do with these things is that it, I find it really inspirational. It makes me want to riff off of Bob Dylan in the way Dylan is riffing off of these other things. And so for me, it's just such a gift. I love, uh, the way that he just gets my mind uh rolling 
uh, the wheels in my head turning and thinking of other uh, connections that one might make uh, in much the same way he does. So thank you, Bob Dylan, for writing this book. <laughs> and it would be a shame if the time he spent writing this book might have been spent writing other songs, but I don't know. I, I, I don't think of when Dylan's painting as that wasted time when he could have been writing songs or when he's writing wasted time. It's, it's a different thing. It's Dylan being Dylan in all his multifaceted Dylan-esque ways. And I dig it. That's what I mean. And that's what the, why, where I think the philosophy and the, the, where he's standing in his truth is in the you is in that constructed in that um, pronoun that he would, that he, is for me the most original and remarkable element of this book is he really, he triangulates self and other and us. We are in the, and he creates this entirely, this unique uh, pronoun in which we are implicated and invited in every instance of that you. So, Grayley, you are the you. You've made use of the, you've accepted the invitation and joined the dance that he started. Do you see? That's what I. I do. Thank you. That's, that is a perfect up. way of expressing it. I there completely agree. And there, there's a great line in the John Trudell chapter uh, where he says, those who do not know the past are doomed to repeat it, but those who obsessively footnote it are just as doomed to repeat it endlessly. And I loved that um, line as a way of expressing the kind of engagement with fragments, uh, bits of the past that Grayley so wonderfully stitched together, because you're not footnoting, you're not just tracking, here's where this came from, here's where that came from. You're actually kind of saying, okay, this is a kind of cluster that Dylan has created, which sends uh, the various uh, constellate parts of this constellation create these little sparks that send me off in these directions because to footnote the past is to just relegate it right to a reference, which is in a way to kind of uh, uh, regulate it, to control it. And he's not, he's not doing that in this book at all. And so um, that's, I, I definitely see that in um, some of, in your wonderful work, Grayley, that you're kind of uh, following that lead. So for a long time, we've known that Dylan creates using a magpie-like pastiche structure, taking pieces of other things. I love the metaphor of, of his sculptures. He takes pre-manufactured objects and welds them together into something new. And we can say that about songs. We can say that about chronicles. I don't think anybody's done in-depth analysis too much of uh, philosophy of modern song, but I suspect there's going to be a lot of that there. But in the in the meantime, some people have suggested that um, Dylan didn't write the philosophy of modern song. I've heard that claim um, that it was outsourced or ghostwritten, or that he co-wrote it, or that parts were written by him and parts by others. We have this bifurcated structure of the riffs versus the. I mean, they're not exactly song analyses, and sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between the riffs and the analyses, but. There is this bifurcated structure to many of the chapters where there's two different voices. And some have suggested that maybe Dylan wrote the riffs and someone else wrote the other, or somebody else is the other voice or other people 
Um, much like there's, if you listen to the audio version, there's many actors who read those other sections. What do you, what are your thoughts on all this, on this, on this authorship question? Or have you put any thought into this or are you just accepting that it's Dylan's voice across the board? It sounds like one register to me. I don't hear two different in the riffs and the commentary or analyses or whatever you want to call those second. That it feels like one register to me. And if he farmed out some of the passages, if once you get the algorithm of this voice, can you reduce these passages? I don't, I don't know what to say about that. But I don't hear two. Does everyone else hear two completely different registers in the... No, I don't. Any, so does anybody agree with that idea that there's these two different voices in there? I mean, he sometimes writes differently in the riffs where there's a kind of freewheeling uh, approach, a kind of improvisational jazz thing that he's doing with uh, his his inhabitation of these songs uh, from the inside. I mean, I guess that's the distinction I would make. The riffs are inside and the commentaries are outside, you know, that in one, he's putting on the mask of the singer and, and inhabiting it as you, right? Almost a kind of method acting thing where he's combining himself, he's interweaving himself into the songs and inhabiting them. And then in the commentaries, he usually holds them at some sort of distance uh, and, and often still odd, you know, idiosyncratic interpretations. But but they're different in that sense. But I agree with Nina. I don't. This feels to me like the product of one agency and that agency feels like that of Bob Dylan. And so. But maybe that just shows you how we've become so accustomed to the magpie nature of Dylan that what is Bob Dylan? You know, as soon as you try to put your finger we'll on it or him. pin it wriggling to the wall, uh, it squirms away because there's just too many Bob Dylans competing uh, for uh, the center of attention. But no, I, I personally would be more interested to learn how the pictures got there and what Dylan's role in selecting those pictures were and, and placing them in relation to the text. But uh, I don't know. It, it, it feels like a Bob Dylan book to me. That's a great question about the pictures, too, because we know he's obsessed with visual arts and cinema. And so he, clearly that's something that he probably cared a lot about. I mean, and there's making a hypothetical uh, about his intentionality. But I would agree with Nina and, 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 and Grayley. This seems like of a piece. Certainly the obsessions that run throughout the thematic obsessions that run throughout time, memory, America, American history. Um, they all kind of pin the riffs and the commentaries together. And the rhythms and the syntax and the diction that we're accustomed to is, you know, his sprezzatura with vernacular and then uh, formal diction. He can do anything with language and it, I hear that throughout this, and I don't see a difference between the two. I would argue in terms of the photos that Rob is totally right that his uh, his pre you know his love of visuals absolutely, and I would accept if someone if there was a team of researchers that gathered seven million photos and kind of ran them by him, you know. 
at his convenience and he went, you know, with the ones that he I I would accept that rather than Bob sitting and Googling for three hours a day. Do you think that's possible? <laughs> Bob, Bob's yeah. Google image search is what. Yeah, I want exactly. To do Wouldn't you like? To- <laughs> <laughs> but maybe that's the maybe that's the Dunkin' Donuts gang is his photo researcher. Yes. Oh, out there. I'll just add that I think there's a, an interesting complexity here because I think when we're talking about this magpie, or even I was thinking like the the bricolage kind of idea where you're kind of creating a cultural something bigger than itself. But then you have these, the the Jeff Slate interview has these interesting things where he's talking about streaming is, is too easy. It's too democratic. You have to limit yourself. You have to bracket yourself off. And within that creativity can come. And then you have the same idea. Like, like, I don't think those are, I don't think there's, that's an antithesis. I think there's something that's sort of really interesting about that, how you have to hem yourself in or he feels he has to hem himself in, that you have too much stuff available to you now. I think that goes back to this idea that he's creating a non-nostalgic, and this is a, this is a complicated, I want to traipse easily here, but I think he's creating kind of a non-glorification, non-nostalgic look at a period of time that is sort of we've lost. And I think that that loss is evident within here. And that loss is not without, um, I don't think he's creating rose-colored glasses of the past at all. But I think he's clearly saying at some point there is something we've lost. And whether that's something that's made by technology, I mean, we go back to the idea of mass production, mass culture. Um, I'm thinking immediately of like Dwight McDonald stuff, Walter Benjamin. There's something that, that he's tapping into that's very similar to that in terms of the modern world obliterating certain pieces that are so meaningful. But then how do we re- recreate that? How do we reclaim that? And I think there's uh, these are unfinished sentences for me, but I think there's something that's really, that's what kind of drifts to my mind when I think about it rather than an individual song. But I think the book demonstrates what you're talking about, Cord, that the way to reclaim it is one voice, one individual, one listener at a time, that the book itself is the demonstration of how to work against the all the erasures and and erosions of digital culture do this and do what Grayley's doing and what we're doing one mind one voice at a time reclaiming and re-inhabiting and 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 re-narrating the past does that no i think that's absolutely right and also just giving giving voice to it, uh, you know, taking it seriously. Some of these songs are very flippant songs, you would think, but he finds mm-hmm. some real deepness in there. I think that's kind of, you know, it doesn't have to be your deepness or my deepness, but I think there's the fact that there's depth there, I think, is important to consider. It's interesting, too, that he's, he's uh, hyper-conscious of his position as a unique human voice but within a kind of industrial complex, right? He is part of the music business. And over and over, we get these images of record stores, right? And of record manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, on the, on the one hand, he prefers that to streaming for reasons that he spoke about in the Jeff Slate interview. But he's also aware that that's a threat to the human uniqueness, which is song, is that it is, it is, uh, appropriated within the mechanisms of industry. And I think a 
per a beautiful, perfectly chosen image to communicate that. I mean, Ni uh, Nina uh, spoke about the first chapter, Detroit City, and it it tapping into that familiar theme of the search for home in Dylan. But of course, it's also a very industrial song, right? We get pictures of the of the Ford plant and uh, reminders that the reason this kid left his home in the first place was to earn a living uh, in a place that he, you know, an industrial center that where he couldn't earn a living back home. And even before that, though, this is the cool thing. I don't know because I've not been keeping up with the reviews of philosophy of modern song or social media. Maybe people have already pointed this out countless times. But if you've got the book in front of you, flip to the two-page spread before the first chapter. And there it is. It's, it's a record plant, right? It's packaging these albums. And sure. when you look closer at it, so you've got these human uh, figures who are kind of robotically uh, packaging these records, these records that contain songs. And the songs, you know, take us out of ourselves and out of our time and place and are so uplifting uh, for us. And yet they're packaged, right, in a plant that someone's doing this all day long, eight hours a day, and look closer and you realize it's a Columbia Records album, and look closer still and you realize it's an album called Memories <laughs> by Mitch Miller. They're literally packaging memories <laughs> in, in uh, this picture. What a perfect way to introduce this book. It's fantastic. Well, and what you're saying there, you have you have you have Fordism, you have Ford, you have the creation of the modern world in the 1920s, that creation of modern America, certainly, and then that modernity, that arc of modernity, which comes through into the 50s and 60s, and you have that last chapter when you have that beautiful evocative image of the the French sculpture of clocks. There's something. I mean, this these are not accidental. Now, going back to Jim's point, I don't know why it's selective in terms of its credits. <laughs> Maybe that's his, you know, footnote joke. Like, you know, uh, oh, you're looking for the footnote here. And as a historian, I do take a, a, a slight injury at all of this. But uh, I, I think that that there's something really uh, that Detroit chapter keeps. I think this conversation has really made me re refocus that. That's a really fascinating between that image and Detroit. That's the that's the origins of the modern song right and that modern being mass-produced recorded sound and then kind of so much of that stuff is in the 50s and early 60s there's there's, there's an arc there i think that he's, he's he's definitely playing with i think there's something to that and then the penultimate image right after um when where when is a single figure pressing an album and so he kind of ends with that idea right, right, as well and I wanted to go um, back to what you were saying about technology. He makes a comment about the siloing in way steep in uh, the siloing of mm -hmm. our our appetites for media and, and art and whatnot in way steep in the big muddy when he's talking about Pete Seeger playing um, playing the song on the, the Smothers Brothers show. And he says, you know, that's because everybody was tuned into the same TV shows, people against the war, people in favor of it. And he talks about how now we only consume what is what, you know, what speaks to our interests and how he finds that problematic. That's what I, I got from that. But, and also my last thought, because I had many thoughts pinging off of what you guys were saying. Um, that cons that idea of Detroit makes me think of the, the commercial he did, the Super Bowl commercial. And he even says that you can drive a Ferrari, but Detroit is where this, this, the, the locus of the, the automobile is. And so 
you know, there's again another thread in all of the things that Dylan creates. And it reminds me of him saying how uh, Rabin taught him to look at art. You can look at it as a whole piece or you can pull, you know, you can look at it. Your your eye can go around the, the piece of art. And I think when we look at everything that Dylan has created, you can pull, you can look at individual components of it, but we can see there's, there's some sort of, I don't know, maybe not unified structure, but we can see the threads, the forest, you know, instead of the trees there, to use Nina's quote from the beginning. And Detroit City is the home of Motown, right? You know, it's that he doesn't talk about that industry, but it's kind of there hovering in the margins. Uh, The art of the unsaid is what I like to think of it as, but there's there, there are the things Dylan leaves unsaid, which maybe is just my imagination, or maybe it's just I'm eager to find gaps that I can fill in with my job, what I do, the hermeneutics of it. Uh, or maybe it's intentional. I guess ultimately it's beside the point. But it's interesting, no matter whose idea it is, putting Motown and the music business in conversation with uh, the mechanization, the age of mechanical reproduction uh, epitomized by uh, Detroit's auto industry. Um, and where music fits into that story. And that connection to Benamine and what, what Court said about the flippancy of some of these songs. I mean, Dylan is asking us to examine fragments of American culture in order to see, uh, the larger patterns rather than impose some sort of philosophy upon all of these, all of these, uh, 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 fragments. So those were some of the threads of the conversation that I kind of picked up on and got, uh, uh, inspired by. There's also this like kind of, um, he makes that quote in that interview about, uh, standards. What will be a standard? A standard becomes something that, you know, is, is, is a different, different from a song, but he makes a comment about, uh, music for the establishment. I think he talks about kind of modern music as sort of music for the establishment. He doesn't go beyond that, really. That's a fascinating idea in terms of the power structures embedded in all of this, and that we can look at Motown uh, as musical genius, but it's also Motown as a product, as just a mass-produced product. Here's another every two weeks. Here's something new, and maybe it will stick, and maybe it won't. Yeah. Um, I think there's something, and then I think we have lost some of that. I think that's what everything's so sort of get kept and, and, and streamlined and, 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 and marketed in certain ways that we have lost that. And it doesn't take much to go back to those. If you look at those, like, um, built like those, not maybe billboard, but charts in the sixties and see how regional they were and see how weird they were and see how there was, you know, you know, the sixties, especially the early sixties, it's a mishmash of really crazy songs that you would hear constantly. Um, and I think that's the kind of thing that gets kind of lost. Um, when we have everything as, you know, platformed the way it is. Yeah, I don't think that he's saying that there's like standards are this, the, the, the standard of excellence, which no longer can exist in, um, uh, uh, a degraded modern world. It's just that the, the technology that has shaped the media scape has, has, has kind of changed in a significant, in, in a, uh, in a significant way. I'll just say, too, that we talk a lot about him on stage as being 80 and having very few peers of people doing what he's doing at his age. But he's also so open to so many things. Like, he's still, his mind is, is, is a picture of someone who still can 
interested in open like he talked about listening to a song for what's what what works what is is it the vocal or is it the lyric or the riff and i think that's that's such a a great you know wonderful despite of where it lands and we have to disagree with everything he says i'm not saying that but i love the fact that it's kind of a portrait of an openness an open-mindedness that we know has always been there but still even you know even some of the best minds become clamped down and that doesn't seem to be the case that's true. There's great vitality that's not n- nostalgia in his. You, d- I do feel often as though what he's writing about a given song it has just occurred to him. It's not. It's not necessarily recollecting and and uh, you know and fixing thoughts and feelings he's had. That it suddenly occurred to him that this is what's going on in the Pretender or whatever. And that's where I, the the fact that we can replay these things over and over again. The technology allows for that. Oh, I, yes. Hearing that newness again and again and again. Yes. And that's back to Benamine celebrating the fact that what modern reproductive tech, re, <laughs> modern, uh, <laughs> <laughs> modern uh, okay. uh, processes of mechanical reproduction <laughs> allow us to, um, uh, uh, to bricolage and to, um, to, simply re-listen. And I, I really love that point that you make, Nina. These these don't seem to be um, long-held um, chestnuts of wisdom about these songs. He seems to be actively like re-listening to these songs. And there is this kind of vitality that this is, that newness is kind yeah, of Yeah, it about. feels that way. Yeah. And that's back to my favorite chapter, Ball of Confusion. That's what I meant to mention to, to Court, talking about... Um, going back to his point about the uh, commodification and the impossibility of having quote unquote standards anymore, or from that Jess Slate interview, it's too democratic. Um, there is a kind of dread in that song where songs like Eve of Destruction become marketable. Songs like Ball of Confusion, he says, I think in the con- the commentary section on Ball of Confusion, what a difference 10 years makes. Right. That the songwriters of that song, Whitfield, uh, and uh, that they um, were writing uh, money. It's what I want. And then 10 years later, they're writing Ball of Confusion. And it's now become marketable. Yeah. It's kind of thinking about that, how even one's um, uh, uh, even one's uh, uh, dread can become uh, marketable and you can become back into slumberland, as he puts it. That's where, Rob, I read Marcuse, One Dimensional Man, how in the late capitalist society, things that are seen counterculture or pushed back on the establishment then become subsumed into that capitalist culture and commodified and become products to buy and sell. But to what Court was saying, it took me a minute to find this, he does to, about establishment music um, in the Poison Love chapter, which also stuck out to me. He says, the problem with Halls of Fame is that they celebrate sanitized version of raw life. And that kind of stuck out to me as someone who has been so celebrated and awarded that he he may be commenting on how those establishment credentials dilute, you know, what he's doing. And so I, I that that really resonated with me quite a bit. And I looked for threads of that throughout the book as well. And his connection to, from that to saying that the music of the day is all same. It's all, there's a sameness. And I'll just add that this book also, because of this book comes from a Dylan world, we can also look at it as a, as a book that shows up in 2022. And if you look at this book and you look at a film like Nope, if you look at a film like even The Fablemans or uh, God Help Us Babylon, 
there is a complete thread going on in the current climate of what does technology do? What does past technology mean? What does the creative process, how is the creative process warped and changed and transmuted because of technology? And this book slides directly into that uh, conversation that seems like there's like a growing frustration as to what, what's going on today. So not only is this a, an interesting book for Dylan, and from the Dylan perspective, I think it's also an interesting per- book that falls in our lap at exactly the same time that a lot of people are questioning uh, the role of tradition and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's really interesting. There, there, there's an extraordinary current backlash against uh, Silicon Valley culture, digital culture. There's this growing movement among young uh, high school kids. They're calling themselves Luddites and uh they're buying flip phones and cutting themselves off from social media. There's a real swell in uh, in culture, and that would be very fascinating to see if this project in any way plays into that. Can I ask about the music itself? I spent a lot of time listening to the Spotify playlist and what people what what is a discovery in here that you've heard that is remarkable or what songs themselves excited you or spoke to you does anyone i know i can say the pretender and london calling are two songs that were transformative milestones in my own life and to have them at the time that they to to experience them folded into this is a real revelation for me in terms of the entire project. Oh, this is what it feels like. These songs were for both of them, for me, were exactly what he's talking about in terms of touchstones, milestones that live and flourish inside of you. And as a teenager, those two songs did. And to have them here now is really, um, was re- is really fascinating for me. But then there are other songs in here that that Garden of Evil, it's an amazing song. I never heard Little Walter's Key to the Highway, which I know backwards and forwards from Derek and the Dominoes. And wow, that was really a gift for me to be able to meet that. Like, what are songs that you, that are like, wow, this is something that you heard? Well, I'll start. I, I had heard yeah. El Paso, obviously, but I had not heard it in years. And I don't think oh, I appreciated what a magnificent song it is. Yeah. <laughs> Until oh, cool. I was drawn back to uh, re-listen to that. <laughs> but in terms of songs like that I had never heard before, yeah. um, I loved Keep My Skillet Good and Greasy. Oh, yeah. Just, yeah. <laughs> you know, I would have never that come across good. that song no. on my own. What, is, what are some other ones? I I thought the Whiff and Poof song was horrible. I don't know how I had never managed to oh, hear it yeah. before, but I, but I thought it was just hilariously yeah. bad. But, of course, that ends up being interesting in itself. And then, oh, um, Jesse James, which I guess I must oh, have yeah. heard before. I but, never. of course, when I was listening to it, all I could hear was Jesus Christ by Woody Guthrie, because that's oh. the one I'm much more familiar with and realized, oh, that's where he got the, that's cool. He got this, oh, cool. the tune for a Jesus song from this outlaw song, yeah. Jesse James. So. Yeah, I think it was a lot of the really old songs I had never heard before that I appreciated Dylan uh, drawing my attention to. I I agree. Just the demented um, Ruby, Are You Mad by the Osborne Brothers. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, 
that's just an yeah. insane song that just struck me like uh, it, 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 he's got a great little riff in there on nostalgia and listening and technology, but the song itself, man, that was that that hit me. Yeah, I listened to that Web Pierce song about a million times. I fell down a Web Pierce hole for a while. Just these people that were so popular, and then you know their voices oh, yeah. are so interesting just, and unique. I think I got stuck on Ball of Confusion, but what the Web Pierce song he uses um, in No Direction Home. So I, I found that interesting. But yeah, Ball of Confusion, I got stuck on. And then um, I think Where and When, too. That kind of... That kind and of which? Thing. which? Uh, the, the Dion song. Oh, the Where and When. Yeah, oh, yeah oh, Where oh, and When. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm getting conscious of time here. So I want to do a little, little uh, cheesy round robin at the end here. So you're all academics. You're all PhDs. You all study Bob Dylan. But I want you to write a two-sentence blurb. Positive, neutral, or negative blurb on the philosophy of modern song. And just give me your two-sentence blurb. Can I steal in a Dylan-esque way from from Bob Dylan himself on Grail Marcus's Invisible Republic, which is a kind of like enigmatic blurb, which says, this book is terminal. It goes deep. It combs through history. Like a rake, which <laughs> is, uh, I think, um, very amb- ambiguous to put it to put it lightly. So I'm going to steal Dylan's blurb on Grail Marcus's Invisible Republic for this one. I love the double entendre of rake there too. That's wonderful. Exactly. Aaron, I I have no blurb. <laughs> um, give me a minute, please. Redacted, Aaron Callahan. That's what we're going to see on the back of the book. <laughs> yeah, I, I think was... the word that comes to mind that I would spend a blurb about would be what Nina said, which I loved, is the idea of being implicated. You know, the the you know the the past. You know, you are implicated by the past, or you're in, you know you're part of this. I think there's something there—a blurb that talks about the the strangeness of the past implicating you as well, or something. I think there's something. I, I wrote that word down, and I, I just think that's a really a key key element to all this. I do love that quote that he pulled at the very end, where the past has a way of showing up in front of you and coming into your life without being called. That's the blurb. I'll just copy him. It's like a Court Carney, you know, Wayne Gretzky, <laughs> Michael Scott, Court Carney. That'd be that'd be the the end of mine. How about you, Grayley? I don't feel like I have a good one either. So uh, I'll riff off of time out of mine. Take a stroll through the lonely graveyard of Bob Dylan's mind and listen in as he speaks with the spirits of his ancestors. Really, from your mouth to Simon and Schuster's paperback edition's ears. I, I, I just eight, eight blurbs yeah. and they all define different books. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> these are the same book. Why ask this question? You know, I my concern is we you know, Bob Dylan already has his built in people. And I'm concerned with getting this in the hands of people that are, you know, don't have a wall full of Bob Dylan CDs and posters. And I would say this is more like the book that I would have to compare this to that might get this in the hands of other people is Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities. 
that I think I would say to people, just stick with this. Don't pick it up and read two pages and put it down and pick it up again. Give yourself an hour and sit down and start reading. And if you do that, you'll find yourself implicated in a voice you haven't heard before. And you'll find yourself going to places you haven't been before. But you got to do it that way. Don't flip through looking at the pictures and don't look at the one, find the two songs that you already know and see what Bob Dylan has to say about them. Don't read it that way. Start from the beginning, give yourself an hour and and read straight, and then you'll get in there. I'm going to steal from Bob, too, I think. Um, I always thought of mainstream culture as lame as hell and a big trick. That's what I kept thinking and returning to as I was reading this, that there's a narrative that uh, mainstream culture creates, even about the songs that are in this book, that he's showing us something different. And so that's what that would be my blurb. That's excellent. Jim, can we have a week to workshop these and get back to you or no? (laughs) Please. No, (laughs) this has been wonderful. Thank you, everyone. This has been great. So I think we can conclude that this is not a coffee table book. It's pretty enough to be one. (laughs) It kind of has that look. It's just not gigantic. I don't like all the borders, all the frou-frou borders. I don't like that. I I was actually going to ask about that. That's my blurb. That's my blurb now. I'm going to take that as my blurb. (laughs) Frou-frou borders. (laughs) borders, yeah. (laughs) They're fascinating. And and given, as somebody pointed out, given uh, Dylan's, preoccupation with visual arts, um, it's hard to believe he didn't approve each and every one of them. Although, who knows? Um, he also didn't necessarily approve the, the signatures on the front of some of them. <laughs> so this has been great. I, I appreciate um, everybody participating. We, we've covered a wide range. Um, yeah, this is my pleasure. We, the, the range has been tremendous. I mean, we've covered everything from the philosophy of the philosophy to the structure, to the to the content, to you know, what really stands out and, and what we think about the book as a whole. And I think one thing we can conclude is this book is, in, in the in the oeuvre of, of Bob Dylan, it might not be the biggest thing, but it's still a big thing because the oeuvre is so big. Um, and when you when you think of it in that context, it's, it's a very important book, I think. Um, and I think we demonstrated that amply here today. So um, I'm just going to go across the board that I, the, uh, my Zoom screen. Rob Virginio, Aaron Callahan, Nina Goss, Court Carney, and Grayley Hearn. Thank you so much. It was so nice to see everybody. It was wonderful. Yes. Oh, I know. You'll have to edit that out, Jim. No, so nice I won't. Yeah, no, 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 oh, okay. Thank you for listening to the Dillentons Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to receive the Dillentons directly to your inbox. And please share on social media.